This is Unfilter, episode 308 for May 7th, 2020. Okay, so this is where it's, you don't go down party lines ideology. You go down adults versus children. This is an issue in which you have you are facing supremely adult questions. Adults, unlike children, have to discuss risk and benefits every day of their decisions. Children don't. Hello, friends, and welcome into 308 of your Corona Cracking Cast. My name is Chris, and it's another late-night broadcast from my mobile Corona Bunker, Lady Jupes. I took a little time, though. You may have noticed there was a bit of a lag between delays. I actually went out into the woods, deep into the woods. Seriously, it was quite nice. It felt like a world where there was no Trump and no big Rona. I think I was sort of feeling like a transition with this pandemic was taking place. Something big was shifting, and I have to say, it was harder leaving the woods than I thought it would be. I know that sounds ridiculous. Like, oh, really, Chris? It was hard. No, really. I thought I'd go there, I'd work a couple of days, and then I'd get right back to it, sort of re-energized. Especially because last episode, it kind of felt like a real sweet spot for me. If you haven't checked out 307 about contact tracing, I recommend you do. But this week, this week, the conversation is plagued with partisan fighting. It really drags me down. I have to work through all this muck just to get you guys any kind of good information. It's hours and hours of partisan, stupid, crap talking points from both sides. And I have to say, it just really made it a chore. So I drug my feet. And I I can't believe during all of this, during this transition, somehow... Prolonging the lockdowns has become the position of the left. Stay home, stay safe, don't drink bleach. And reopening the economy to save jobs and businesses, well, that's the cold, old, cruel position of the Republicans on the right, putting lives at risk. What a ridiculous, man-made cage match we have found ourselves in. And isn't this the very kind of situation that's a breeding ground for corruption and fighting? And I'll note... Letting certain stories sneak by that you'd prefer don't get much attention. I got an example of that towards the end of the show today. You know, something they hope you don't notice. Focus on the Rona. Don't pay attention over here. We'll talk about that. Uh, And this kind of situation, this partisan fighting is just such fertile ground for that kind of stuff. It just drives me crazy. And the media doesn't help at all either. They'll play clips of protesters complaining about how long their hair is or how they need new shoes. Or, I mean, perhaps even worse. This is probably the more dangerous version. They'll boost certain political figures that paint small business owners as Nazis. Um, You know, depicted some of the worst racism and, and awful parts of our history in this country. You know, the Confederate flags and nooses, the um, swastikas, the, you know, behavior that you've seen in all of the clips is not representative of who we are in Michigan. That's Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. She talks about it like it's nothing but Nazis and Tea Party extremists out there, whatever they call them now. Of course, there's every type out there, isn't there? But they'll just focus on the one type. Last week, I asked you to vote if you were ready to go out or stay home. (laughs) And wouldn't you know it, it's split 50-50 on the nose as I record this. Uh, it's, It's almost too perfect. Mommy needs a joint. So here's my goal for you and me. This is also a personal goal. I got to keep things interesting. I'm going to try to change a few minds, not because of some political agenda or some talking point which now it'll sound like it is because this has been politicized, this has become partisan, but because I can give voice to the counter-mainstream narrative. Or, let's put that another way. In my own way, I will try to give reasonable consideration to a very important aspect of this historical pandemic. I am beginning to think it is reasonable to conclude we must take the risk to reopen. I know that families are being torn apart. I know that child abuse and domestic violence is up. I've also heard some stories about parents' capacity to even feed their children 
being diminished because they haven't worked in so long. I also have some personal firsthand experience with family businesses that are collapsing. And that's, that's been really hard to watch because these businesses have been 30 plus years in the making and they were successful, good businesses. They just happen to be in hotel and restaurants, which are two areas that have been horribly devastated. And the restaurant end, they have to reopen before the stay-at-home order is lifted here in Seattle or they're out of business. They're done. I think it's time to start talking about this risk because life is filled with risk. You know that. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. Life is filled with risk. And it, it seems to me that we're in a good position to handle this risk. We are exiting peak flu season. That's going to help. We know what we're looking for. And we know how to find it. It's a matter of capacity now, but that's increasing. People, no doubt, will continue to get the virus. We will, no doubt, continue to detect more cases of the virus as we ramp up testing. All of these things can be true while we should still consider opening. Consider a framework for thinking about this problem. The only risks we can measure are the ones that are things like the infection rate and the death from corona. But just as potentially dangerous is continuing the lockdown. We have no way of measuring the economic and family and personal impacts that we'll have. As a people, humans are inclined to focus on what we can measure and ignore what we can't. It's just, it's just too risky. It's too risky to do it. Or maybe the more modern version would be, your haircut isn't worth lives, Nazi! And don't, don't, don't take this levity to imply that the, the situation isn't deadly serious. As this episode releases, the U.S. death toll will likely be over 72,000, and the world death toll near 30, almost 3.8 million. But I think my core point is we have to stay humble when we use these frameworks to think about things. A lot of us will become armchair experts all of a sudden, and I think it's really important to keep in mind there's always new things to learn constantly like i started this saying i think i'm coming to the conclusion that we should reopen i haven't i haven't said sat here and said we must do this i'm constantly taking in data and reevaluating and we all must do this we have to even consider that it is possible that the staying at home orders are not an effective mitigation here's new york governor chris i'm sorry mr como i'm sorry cumin no. No? Overwhelmingly, the people were at home, uh, where there's been a lot of speculation about this. A lot of people, again, had opinions. A lot of people have been uh, arguing uh, where they come from and where we should be focusing. But if you notice, 18% of the people came from nursing homes. Less than 1% came from jail or prison. 2% came from the homeless population, 2% from other congregate facilities. But 66% of the people were at home. The New York data shows us that 66% of people admitted with COVID-19 to hospitals were actively staying at home and following the stay-at-home orders. They were staying home and staying safe. 66%. There's another thing we can't measure. I don't know what you'd call it, liberty status, right? We don't have a way to put our freedoms and liberties on a chart. <laughs> There's no one monitoring the liberty status. No one has a constitutional gauge showing our constitutional compliance level. <laughs> in fact, I think in a lot of ways, not only are we gambling with people's lives for reasons that we don't even fully understand yet, but we could also be setting a very dangerous precedent. Now, I've directed Superintendent Brown to order all police districts to give special attention to these parties. And this is how it's going to be. We will shut you down. We will cite you. And if we need to, we will arrest you and we will take you to jail. Period. The time for educating people into compliance is over. Don't be stupid. Don't come out. Don't advertise on social media. We're watching you. Yeah, that's Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who was recently called out for having her hair cut at her favorite salon, getting them to open, going in there, not social distancing and having her hair cut because, quote, I have to look good, end quote. But you don't. 
but Lori does. And she'll send the police after you. What kind of precedent is this? And what authority is the mayor using for this? And here's my other concern when I think about this, and I would invite you to bring this into your framework. If we wait until there's no risks, then we would literally have to wait forever. There are no good choices in this. There's only going to be historical choices and impacts that we have to live with. We find ourselves in a bad situation. Sometimes that describing it as a war feels like hyperbole, but sometimes there is an accurate corollary there. You don't want to go to war, but then you have to deal with what you got. And this is it. Unfilter returned on March 18th, just in time to cover one of the biggest events of our lifetime. There's no doubt about it. We're living through it, and we're trying to navigate this with you. But there really has been no possible better time to bring back the podcast of the people's history. And I thought it was worth noting that with no set schedule, just as the news comes, 17 episodes have been released over the last six weeks. That's nearly three episodes a week, not quite. But with your support, and I'm very excited to announce this, we hope to get the show fully back on track with regular release schedule and, most importantly to me, having learned lessons from when we put the show on hiatus, It's important that the show is sustainable and enduring in a way that, in a business sense, in a way that is in a a business sense, that it can continue and make sense for me to allocate time to it. So we are going to resume the Patreon. Woohoo! I gotta say, it has been um, a lot of conversations behind the scenes between myself, Angela, and Chase. We're going to be talking more about it. Things are still very early. There's some bigger pieces that are going on that... I can't talk about yet, and all of these things are starting to line up, but before we resume the patron, I I just want to ask you to review your patron tier level or your subscription if you want to continue to subscribe, because it will begin auto-resuming next month, June, June 1st, as I record this. I would encourage you to just double-check everything's good there. If you would like and you aren't signed up yet, patreon.com slash unfilter. Also, please perhaps considering increasing your support because I am very serious about trying to make this thing sustainable. Patreon.com slash unfilter. We have tiers there, and we'll be rolling out more perks like a Discord integration as well as a monthly chat session where we can kick ideas around. You guys can ask me questions or send me your, your thoughts on things. And we'll most likely do that in a dedicated Discord chat channel. But I'm open to to other ways of doing that, too. Maybe things that don't require a Discord account and whatnot. So those are all things that are kind of getting worked out that will be exclusive to our uh, executive 33 level. Which I love that name. We've we've spruced up the place a little bit. I mean, I've still got, if you look around in here, I've still got the old uh, club music. Yeah. It's the executive club now. Club 33 has transformed into the executive club just to make things a little fancier, but also to try to reflect on the seriousness that we're taking this as as an investment of effort. It's something that um, I've been trying to spend a lot of time thinking about, and we're going to reflect some of those changes there. And we'd really appreciate your support because this show only works as an audience funded show. I don't have any intention of taking advertising unless I want to advertise something for myself, like my podcast consulting. Um, Audience funded or it doesn't work is essentially what the conclusion I've come to. And so uh, I think that's fair. As a people's history, I think that's probably how it has to be. Our number one priority, our guiding star, has to be our audience. Patreon.com slash unfilter. It's a soft start. You can sign up right now. It will charge you, and you'll be in. You get access to the perks as we start rolling them out and all of that. If you're an existing member, you never did anything with your subscription, it will auto-resume on June 1st. So you've got some time to cancel it or make adjustments if you'd like. So we're soft-launching the patron now, officially going to be launched and billing on June 1st for established patrons. Thank you very, very much, you guys, for your support. It is supremely gratifying to see that kind of support come in because it is as the wise Adam Curry has said many times, true value for value. So thank you guys very much. Really the best audience in the freaking world. So let's get into some news. There is 
much to talk about COVID-related, so let's start with the reopening theme and the risks associated. CNews Special Report. Now reporting, David Muir. <laughs> yeah. Good afternoon, I'm David Muir in Phoenix, Arizona, and we're interrupting regularly scheduled programming to bring you breaking news at this hour. So David Muir has traveled to Arizona because that's where President Trump is. Now, I just note that because... One of the uh, pot shots at Trump recently is he's been skipping all over the country, acting like coronavirus doesn't exist. The very people that have been criticizing for them are following him around, covering it live from wherever he's at, also skipping. It just was ironic to me. So David follows the president. The president's been touring uh, factories for masks and, and whatnot to just essentially message to the public that we're opening back up. Look, the president feels safe to travel. The president's traveling. Uh, I guess. I want to ask you about what Dr. Fauci said last night about the reopening of the country. He said it's the balance of something that's a very difficult choice. How many deaths and how much suffering are you willing to accept to get back where you want to be? Do you see it that way? Do you believe that's the reality we're facing, that that lives will be lost to reopen the country? It's possible there will be some because you won't be locked into an apartment or a, or a house or whatever it is. But at the same time, we're going to practice social distancing. We're going to be washing hands. We're going to be doing a lot of the things that we've learned to do over the last period of time. And we have to get our country back. You know, people are dying the other way, too. When you look at what's happened with drugs, it goes up. When you look at suicides, I mean, take a look at what's going on. People are losing their jobs. We have to bring it back, and that's what we're doing. It doesn't really seem that controversial to me. It's a risk-cost analysis that he's doing here. It's pretty standard stuff, but it's being looked at as a cold, calculated, unconcerned approach. And the media and the morally righteous in general pretend like it's not a risk calculation and that it's an A or B, one or a zero. And then they blast leaders when they acknowledge that there is a choice or a, a, a balance to be struck. This, this is now the sides that have uh, um, assembled, if you will. There is the uh, open it back up cold side and the sh keep it shut down, save life side. And it's if you are in either one of these camps and someone were to suggest the opposite of what you expect, it's it's unbelievable the kind of attacks you, you receive. You guys should just see my inbox these days. And it's and it's simply it's simply, in my estimation, a matter of holding two ideas in your head once again, that it is risky and that we have to take steps. But at the same time, there's an extreme risk of letting businesses around us continue to collapse and honestly keeping people cooped up in their home. But here's an example of that sort of moral righteousness that happens is some audio was leaked during a private call amongst a governor and his legislation. Uh, how do we know reopening businesses won't result in faster spread or more cases of COVID-19? This is Governor Greg Abbott. This is a private phone call with Texas legislators, and someone leaked this because they knew just audio of him admitting that there is a calculus would get fire. Uh, listen, the, the, the fact of the matter is uh, pretty much every scientific and medical report shows that uh, whenever you have a reopening, whether you want to call it a reopening of business or just a reopening of society uh, in the aftermath of something like this, that it actually will uh, lead to an increase in spreads. It's almost ipso facto. Uh, the more that you have people out there, uh, the, the greater the possibility there is for transmission. We may need some faith healers. <laughs> and this is how I kind of view it: is is this sort of this sort of got to take the bad with the good approach? And it's happening one way or another. The businesses are beginning to reopen, so I think what we should focus on is how to keep the infections low without having to track individuals with some sort of dystopian sci-fi future tracing technology.
First weekend without a shelter-in-place order, shoppers are taking full advantage despite many stores remaining closed. At South Atlanta's Greenbrier Mall, many crowded this shoe store for a new release. But at this outlet mall in North Georgia, only a trickle of shoppers for Friday's reopening. I mean, you've never seen an outlet mall with this few people. It's almost like, hey, we can get in and out. Yes. <laughs> Georgia is one of 34 states that have either lifted restrictions or announced plans to start scaling back over the next two weeks. 34 states. 34 states. And with that comes the chatter of the risk. And you'll hear a lot about the increased infection rate, how uh, infection rates are up right now. Funny how when we were sheltering and staying home, staying safe, and the infection rates didn't immediately drop, we were told, well, you have to wait. There's a one to two week leg as people get infected, develop symptoms, and then get tested, and then that gets registered. There's a one to two week leg. Now, Somehow, perhaps the miracle of modern innovations like door hooks, people have been able to determine that the immediate reopening of the economy has caused people to get sick. Within 24 hours, we're now able to make this prediction. No more waiting for the testing leg. I find this to be really shitty journalism. There's stoking fears. One of the absolute worst things that could happen is we open this bitch back up and then everybody gets sick, we panic, and it crashes hard. Or, second to that, would be that we scare the shit out of all of the public, like the media seems to be trying to do, so that nobody goes out, and even though we lift restrictions, the businesses still fail. These are the potential circumstances in which they are just playing with, just having a little bit of fun, just, you know, whatever gets the clicks, right? This is why shows like new shows have to be audience funded. It's not successful. You can't run a 20 person plus or a 100 person plus news division off of audience funding. But you, you can fund a small operation. Well, we're going to find out, aren't we? I guess I should. I'll wait and see. But I'm, my my hope is you can fund a small operation who has no political agenda, no particular leaning other than keeping their audience happy. And I think where you see the difference here is I'm willing to say it's possible that there's two things that could happen here. Not it's just one or the other. And I think just just being just having the dialogue like that makes a huge difference. Looking at these things from a more centered position makes a huge difference. Considering two things at once makes a huge difference. <laughs> now with that said, now that I've prepped you, let's talk about the chatter this week about the origins of COVID-19, because a lot more, actually, has surprising things have developed around evidence, quote unquote, on where COVID-19 has come from. Turns out it just doesn't agree with each other. The evidence is all kind of contradicting, you might say. So let's start with some of this. There's a, uh, initially uh, a report that I think came out of Australia. Lots of questions and suspicions on day 128 of the coronavirus crisis. Oh, uh, no, no, no. Right, right. In fact, I grabbed this clip because is day 128. I thought it was interesting that he mentioned that. Did it come from that infamous Wuhan Institute of Virology? It was almost like everybody started talking about this on day 128. And I tried to, try, okay, why, what was it? What was it? And I figured out there was a new report that came out by different agencies, uh, what the reason what I mean there is there's the Five Eyes group. They represent a group of intelligence agencies. They released a report and the State Department released a report. And all of this has kind of come out on this day, 128. And so the coverage started ramping up, including coverage in Australia from Sky News. Now, that's what I was thinking of. Government trained and employed a team of Chinese scientists now the subject of a probe into the origins of the coronavirus in a world exclusive. The Daily Telegraph says a dossier compiled by Western governments featured the scientists work now at the centre of investigations to determine if an accidental release caused the pandemic. The dossier cites the scientists work discovering samples of coronavirus from a bat cave in China with a striking genetic similarity to COVID-19. The group also allegedly researched synthesising a bat-derived coronavirus that could not be treated. The document lays the foundation for accusing China of a cover-up, stating it deliberately engaged in the suppression and destruction of evidence. Now, that's interesting. 
However, also interesting is the director of National Intelligence Office released a study saying the exact opposite. And shortly after that, it was during the Sunday news cycle, Martha Raddatz on ABC had Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, on, and she asked him if there was evidence at all showing that this virus came from a lab in Wuhan. And Mr. Secretary, have you seen anything that gives you high confidence that it originated in that Wuhan lab? Martha, there's enormous evidence that that's where this began. Oh? Uh, we've said from the beginning that this was uh, a virus that originated in Wuhan, China. We took a lot of grief for that uh, from the outset, but I think the whole world can see now. Remember, China has a history of infecting the world, and they have a history of running substandard laboratories. These are not the f first times that we've had a world exposed to viruses as a result of failures in a Chinese lab. Uh, and so while uh, the intelligence community continues to do its work, they should continue to do that and verify so that we are certain. I can tell you that there is a significant amount of evidence that this came from that laboratory in Wuhan. Enormous significant evidence and I'd be all right. OK, I could I could buy that from the secretary of state. He seems like somebody who should know. The problem with well, is that everything kind of went off the rails with the next question. I, I guess he wasn't paying attention. Maybe he was distracted by that uh, thing we're going to mention towards the end of the episode. I'm not sure what was going on, but she asked him if COVID was man-made. And he seems to say, yes, listen carefully. And then when she clarifies, he seems to say no. Do, do you believe it was man-made or genetically modified? Pretty straight, pretty clear. I got to give Martha credit. Look, the best experts so far seem to think it was man-made. Mm. You know, as far as politicians go, they don't generally give you that direct of a specific answer, right? I mean, he really gave her the answer. Modified? Look, the best experts so far seem to think it was man-made. I have no reason to disbelieve that at this point. Uh, your, your office of the DNI says the consensus, the scientific consensus, was not man-made or genetically modified. That's right. I, I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, that's what I said. Yeah, I've, se I've seen their analysis. I've seen the summary that you saw that was released publicly. I have no reason to doubt that that is accurate at this oh, point. Okay. So I, shit, I'm just supposed to say whatever they've released publicly. Crap. So just to be clear, you do not think it was man-made or genetically modified? I've seen what the intelligence committee has said. I have no reason to believe that they've got it wrong. Oh, man, he blew that one, didn't he? Yeah, I'm just going to just gonna just go with that. Uh, and then he went on like a run-the-clock-out tirade about China, <laughs> which I just cut. He kind of finished it with a really strong ending, so I almost left it all in there. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, they do that sometimes, these politicians. They'll ramble, run the clock for 25 seconds, and then end it with a five-second topper. And it almost makes it worth it, but but not quite. I was mentioning that Five Eyes, five Eyes report. Uh, that came out just a little bit before a press conference that Mike Pompeo was attending. And the Five Eyes report came out and said, uh, the best of our abilities, all of our intelligence combined, the great superpowers of the world, I mean controllers, I mean intelligence, I mean um, uh, nerds, yeah, nerd, we'll go with that, nerds. Uh, we have computed that it must be natural, there's no weaponization of it at all, look over here, there's nothing to see. And that was just before Pompeo's news conference, so reporters could ask him about it. I don't think he liked that. Oh, that's all consistent. That that's all consistent. Barbara, 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 we've been through it, Barbara. And so on. So I'm just wondering. Yeah. Um, and also the IC statement last week doesn't sort of talk about any evidence. Are you basing your assertion on information yeah, that all of these parties... Do you hear this? Oh, Barbara, just shut up. Jeez. ...parties do not have. And a second ba question... Barbara, about Barbara, let me, just, let me just put this to bed. Your efforts to try and find just to spend your whole life trying to drive a little wedge between senior American officials... I think I see what Trump likes in this guy. I think I'm seeing it here. To spend your whole life trying to drive a little wedge between senior American officials. No, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just false. It's just, it's just, it's just, every, every, Bar that. Barbara, every one of those statements is entirely consistent. Every one of them. Lay them down together. There's no separation. We're all trying to figure out the right answer. Actually, I just played your statements and they were um, polar opposites of consistent. <laughs> we're all trying to get to clarity. There are different levels of certainty assessed at different places. That's highly appropriate. That's that people stare at data sets and come 
to different levels of confidence. I'm not sure what it is that about the grammar that you can't get. We don't have certainty. This is a few moments later in the press conference. And there is significant evidence that this came from the laboratory. Those statements can both be true. I've made them both. Administration officials have made them. They're all true. But, but focus, focus, on, focus on the most important piece here. Now, pay attention. The reason why I left this part in here is a couple of politicians have different techniques. Trump has, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, when he wants, when somebody's trying to interrupt him and he wants to keep going. Pompeo has kind of a, like a bulldozer approach. Most important piece here is that the American people remain at risk. The American people remain at risk because we do not know, to your point, we don't have certainty about whether it began in the lab or whether it began someplace else. He just dominates, doesn't let them speak. He just runs it. Uh, and Barbara, 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 Barbara. <laughs> uh, there is one thing I think, I, you know, we could sit here and talk about the Wuhan lab. I think there is a lot you should look into there. That's not me, me copying out on talking about it. I'm just saying I was, um, I'm generally, my first position will always be the simplest answer is generally what it is. Like if it's incompetence, or whatever, like that's generally the cause of something, and that was my approach. It's you know, I could see some weird bat thing. Is yeah, I could see it, right? Just like the meat plants, the meat factories here in the states are disgusting. You could see something happening there. You could, it makes sense. But a few episodes back, you'll have to check. It's been a little while now. There was some information in there about a couple of employees who worked at the lab near that Wuhan wet market, and it. It made me think there could be something to it. It might not have been anything sinister. It could have been as simple as they were attempting to develop. Who knows? Maybe they were attempting to develop vaccines and treatments for Corona type viruses. Or the next one. I, who knows? And it went out of control. Who knows? But it does seem like there is one thing the U.S. has on China in this entire thing, whether that lab was the source or whether it was truly of 100 percent natural causes. Setting those things aside, there still seems to be a kind of point of contention that not just the U.S., but the entire world has on China. And that is, it seems rather well documented that they covered up the severity of the coronavirus so that way they could hoard supplies. Meanwhile, is sharpening his criticism of China tonight after a U.S. intelligence report found China hid the severity of the outbreak and then hoarded vital medical supplies. Uh -oh. So will the president, will the U.S. take action? Here's our chief White House correspondent, Jonathan Carl. So now the question is, will he take action? I thought I, I can never keep straight. Do we want him doing things against China or not with the media? Anyways, so this intelligence report comes out, intelligent, as they like to say on uh, ABC, the intelligent report comes out and it says that, uh, yeah, they knew. And the reason why they didn't tell you anything wasn't for some big scam reason or anything like that. It was just simply they wanted all the goodies. They needed all the supplies so that way they could get through this. To President Trump, there is no doubt who is to blame for the coronavirus pandemic. It came from China. It should have been stopped. It could have been stopped on the spot. They chose not to do it or something happened. Either there was incompetence or they didn't do it for some reason. And we're going to have to find out what that reason was. The U.S. is accusing China of covering up just how devastating the virus was when it first hit. A report by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, obtained by ABC News, concludes, quote, the Chinese government intentionally concealed the severity of COVID-19 from the international community in early January while it stockpiled medical supplies. <laughs> oh, man. Kind of seems like perhaps we got him on that one. And um, I, I, I sense a coalition forming between the U.S., Australia, and they're trying to rope their buddies in over in France and every anywhere, actually really anyone they can, I'm sure, but it seems to be what the angle is right now. <laughs> and I'm really curious to see where this goes, because I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up being nothing more than just a leveraging pos position for ne negotiations on trade deals, <laughs> you know, like no, no real repercussions, no payments, no uh, helping repay all the damage done, nothing like that, just some good deals on uh, trades that will impact large corporations and small to medium businesses who won't even notice. They'll, they'll be none the wiser. Another point of discussion this week has been the spinning down of the coronavirus task force. Maybe a symbolic move. I'm not sure, but I got quite a bit of attention. 
Tonight, as President Trump hits the road for the first time in more than five weeks touring a factory in Arizona that's now producing N95 masks, he's also winding down the White House Coronavirus Task Force. The vice president saying it could happen around Memorial Day. Mike Pence and the task force have done a great job, but we're now looking at a little bit of a different form. And that form is safety and opening. The decision announced even as the death toll climbs past 70,000. So the, the idea is you begin to wind it out. Uh, here's a few more details because uh, that, that, that report starts to go off, off track. CNN. Vice President Pence now confirming that there are conversations going on about the White House Coronavirus Task Force phasing out around Memorial Day, either at the end of May or early June. Pence telling this to reporters in a briefing that CNN was not invited to, a source (laughs) telling me that key medical experts will continue to advise President Trump even after the coronavirus task force folds. A separate, knowledgeable source, sources really, tell me that this news of the task force closing down was not shared with the actual task force when it met earlier today. In fact, some members learned about the decision through journalists, not from the White House. The White House appears to be entering a period right now of hoping that everything will go back to semi-normal, despite the fact that the death toll and infection rates continue to grow. It could also be that uh, it just wasn't a final decision. Trump just seems to be throwing things out there while he's thinking about them, or he's sending out test balloons. And then he, he changed course today. Today, after all of the reporting was written, the headlines were done, all of the recording happened for like podcasts and everything like that, Everybody put out their their stuff this morning saying the task force was being wound down. But then later in the day, during uh, a moment where reporters came in after he met with the governor, he says, well, you know what? Uh, Maybe we'll just keep it going. Maybe. Can you explain the change between what you said yesterday about winding down the task force and, and, and well, now saying you're going yeah, yeah, well, different from what you yeah. said yesterday? Well, I guess if you think we're always winding it down, but, you know, it's a question of what, what the end point it is. is but it, I think it is a change uh, a little bit. I thought we could wind it down sooner, but I had no idea how popular the task force is until actually yesterday. When I started talking about winding it down, I'd get... Calls from very respected people. Let's hold on. Let's stop here. Let's break this down so far. He just literally says it. I had no idea how popular it was. It's it's a it's a thing people like. It's a thing we're doing people like, and so I'm not going to shut it down. He just says it. Instead of saying its work isn't complete, there's important work to left to be done, or actually there's we believe there's expanded roles it can take on. Like he could say all of that, but instead he says it's, it's popular. But then He gives something away here that I think could indicate their plan to combat what the Democrats are building now to go after them for their response. This task force may turn into their response force to that. I I don't know. Listen to what he's saying here. See, let me know what you think if this is what he's saying. Unfiltered.show slash Discord. Do you think he's implying here that the task force will remain in and then they'll morph it into a defense force. Actually, yesterday, when I started talking about winding it down, I'd get calls from very respected people. Very respected people means somebody that he respects, or at least it's somebody that he believes their input is valid. And they said, hey, don't shut this thing down. You're going to need these guys. Saying, I think it would be better to keep it going. It's done such a good job. It's a respected task force. It's, uh, um, I, I, I knew it myself. I didn't know whether or not it was appreciated by the public, but it is appreciated by the public. I think what happened is this person called him up and said, these are respected figures. If you keep them working for you and then let them defend you, so far they're blocking that, but hold up. They're not done building this thing yet. Let these respected figures that pull well with the public, who the media themselves have positioned as the heroes of this thing, let them now become your defenders. I mean, you look at the job we've done on everything, on supplies, on everything, the gowns, the gloves, the fa- the masks. You saw yesterday the mask. We were at a factory yesterday, a great company, Honeywell. And in a period of four days, they took a big factory, essentially four days, a little longer, two weeks, but it was really most of the work done in four days. They took a big plant that did other things and they converted it into masks. You have to see, it's, it's actually a complicated process, but they have unbelievable equipment and they're doing millions of masks out of this factory and that took place so quickly and that was all because of the task force i mean all of this happened because of the people working within the administration and something i didn't know mike they take 
different layers of material and compress it, put it together. <laughs> because one layer is good for something, one layer is good for something else. One layer is good for very tiny particles. I mean, it's really, you think of it as a mask. They make a very good mask. This is really something that's very special. So, um, so the task force will be around until we feel it's not necessary. But I will say that I learned yesterday, even after I spoke, Jeff, that the task force is something you knew. It's very respected. Respected. People said we should keep it going. So let's keep it going. And so we'll be doing that. But we'll be adding some people to it. Oh, this is why we stuck around. This is where I think, well, adding people to it, huh? Hmm. Keep it going. So let's keep it going. And so we'll be doing that. But we'll be adding some people to it, actually. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's just for the economy. Maybe it's just uh, they're going to just, instead of forming a different economic group, they'll just shift that one more to that focus with maybe a look towards prevention and testing. We'll see. That'd actually probably be pretty effective. Or they're going to lawyer it up. I'm not sure. I suspect, really, I've talked about the partisanship a lot around these issues. And I, I think... We probably know where it comes from. It comes from the top. It comes from Donald Trump. It comes from Nancy Pelosi. Speaker Nancy Pelosi joins me now from Capitol Hill. Madam Speaker, thank you very much for being with us today. It's good to see you. Nice to be here. Uh, the thank president you. said that there will be more deaths, but that the virus will pass, that it is time to reopen the economy. And as we see hot spots spreading across the country, do you agree with him now that it's time to focus more on what he sees as getting back to normal? No, what I think we must do, and science tells us, is that we must have testing, 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 tracing, 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 and, and have a, 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 a no. She always falls apart. She does this line. I have watched her say this. 16 times, I think. <laughs> I mean, I've watched it at least in clips that many times. She never gets this right. She never gets this part right. Testing, tracing, 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 and, and have a, 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 a number, a, an idea of how our country has been affected in all communities across the country. That's why I'm so, we're all here working on putting again uh, the next uh, CARES 2 bill. It's about testing, tracing, treatment and uh, isolation, uh, dis, uh, social distancing and the rest. That's what your next bill's about? Right away, rapid and robust testing so we can see and take a measure of what is there. And She's literally, her plan is to come on air and just try to fit testing into as many sentences as possible. And robust testing so we can see and take a measure of what is there and, and not to do so in a way that one day they have a task force, the next day they don't. One day they have a volunteer corps, the next day it's uh, looking like it's a, a handmaiden of, of good friends of the White House. Here she is, turning it toxic, making it political. She's not doing a good job, but she doesn't have to. She just has to tell all of the foot soldiers the direction they need to march in, which is what she's signaling here. And she's doing it so poorly. Task force, the next day they don't. One day they have a volunteer corps, the next day it's... Uh, it, it, looking like it's a, a handmaiden of, of good friends of the White House. It's it's pathetic. And it's he does it as well. Trump does it as well with his little pot shots at every other sentence. But the two of them set the marching orders at the top, and it has created this destructive, non-productive breeding ground for bogus information and corruption. Here's a great example of this. We're going to end our Corona news on my favorite story of the week. Neil Ferguson. You may have heard him referred to as the lockdown professor. And he just quit his position working for the government. Now, what position might that be? Well, well, friends, I'll let the clip explain it to you because it's, it's so rich. Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 6th of May. One of the government's leading coronavirus scientists whose advice led to the lockdown in the UK has resigned after he breached social distancing guidelines. Oh, OK, soak in the richness here, my friends. The guy who was the champion of the lockdowns in the UK 
was violating those very lockdowns. And you might ask, well, Chris, how did he violate those lockdowns? Professor Neil Ferguson quit following reports that a woman said to be his married lover visited his home on at least two occasions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, his married mistress, mother of two, was coming over to his house. He was sick and got her sick. It's, it's uh, hypocritical, um, it's illogical, um, and it's sort of one rule for, for one and, and another rule for everybody else. That's it right there. It is the, even the very people making the rules. I mentioned that the Chicago mayor was getting her hair cut. President Obama had a golf course open for him so he could go play golf. In a way, the leadership and the elites of the country are taking advantage of the fact that everything's closed down. And so the security situations are improved and they're going and they're enjoying themselves. Even Chris Cuomo, I'm sorry, Kuman. I'm sorry, what? Cuomo? Kuman. Cuomo? Kuman. Cuomo. Cuomo? Oh. Even Chris Cuomo from CNN, while he was preaching from his basement about how you need to stay home and talking about how bad his personal battle with COVID-19 was, even while that man was saying those words on air, he was caught outside and then harassed a biker. Or the biker harassed him, depending uh, the bicyclist harassed him, depending on whose story you believe. He was busted outside, not social distancing, looking at property while he had COVID-19. And then he pretended to come out of his basement on CNN for the first time. All fake. And then you hear about guys like Professor Lockdown, who, who also was the guy that misestimated how impactful bird flu would be. In fact, he has a track record of way overestimating deaths. He said that the UK would be near 200,000 right now. That guy was violating those very lockdowns he advocated for to have his mistress come over and he got her sick. Here's, a, here's another uh, show from uh, Across the Pond's take on it. You must stay at home. It is the type of breathtaking hypocrisy that makes you understand why the public holds so many experts and politicians and other public figures in total disregard. Professor Neil Ferguson, Professor Lockdown, he was called the man that got us into these draconian measures in the first place as a result of his, I would say, quite dodgy scientific modelling has been caught not following social distancing procedures. Dr. Hillary Jones, as you can tell, I'm heated today. I'm angry about this. And I <laughs> All right, let's let's calm down. Let's calm down. I mean, it's funny. It's funny, but it's an example of not heeding your own advice. But it does seem like maybe this has shifted the conversation a bit. It sounds like they're starting to say we'll be relaxing, quote unquote, the lockdown by Monday which, as I record this, is only a few days away. So much we still don't know about coronavirus and what comes next. The health secretary here today to answer some of the thousands of questions submitted by Sky News viewers. And the first one about this man, Professor Neil Ferguson, who was until last night a key advisor to the government, forced to resign after breaking the lockdown rules he helped design. The social distancing rules are there for everyone. And they're incredibly important and they're deadly serious. Should he be prosecuted? Well, that uh, you can imagine what my views are, but that is absolutely I a can't matter. imagine. Tell <laughs> me. It's a matter for the police. Other questions people want answering. When might they go back to work, be reunited with family, send their kids back to school? It's tempting to give concrete answers, but the problem is... Our viewers is, just want something that they can they look to. Of course they do. And I think... And uh, what... A, the, I, I'm not you know, dodging the question, I'm answering really directly. We don't know. How are you going to handle the new Labour leader, Prime Minister? Questions not just from the public, but from MPs too. The Prime Minister out of number 10 to the Commons for his first appearance there in six weeks. It is good to be back, even though I've been away uh, for longer than I had intended. And during his absence, the UK's death toll has climbed at a devastating pace. He said that many people were looking at the apparent success of the government's approach. But yesterday we learned, tragically, that at least 29,427 people in the UK have now lost their lives to this dreadful virus. That's now the highest number in Europe. It's the second highest in the world. That's not success. 
I don't think that uh, international comparisons and uh, the data is, is yet there to draw the conclusions uh, that we want. The argument that international comparisons can't really be made when the government's been using slides like this for weeks to do international comparison just really doesn't hold water. The UK was slow into lockdown, slow on testing, slow on tracing and slow on the supply of protective equipment. People want to know how we get out of lockdown. Labour pushing to hear the plan. Will the Prime Minister give him that reassurance by setting out his plan as he says he will? And will he come to this House on Monday uh, to present that plan? We'll want, if we possibly can, to get going with some of these measures on Monday. I think it would be a good thing, Mr Speaker, if, if people had an idea of what's coming. The Prime Minister wants to tweak the lockdown as early as Monday. Well, what might that look like? A senior minister tells me that could mean reopening smaller shops and outdoor workplaces, but they are still looking at the data. The watchword in all of this is caution. Stamping on the accelerator just too dangerous. Think of this more as slowly lifting your foot off the brake. We'll see. We'll see. I'll watch, and uh, if anything interesting develops, I'll try to include it in next week's episode. There's the uh, quintessential reopening versus lockdown story that's being kicked around. I'll just give you a taste of it. We don't have to play the entire thing. But this is that story you may have heard about because it's getting quite a bit of mileage today. And I imagine it'll still be getting coverage tomorrow. That's this Dallas salon owner who was jailed for opening her salon and bringing people back to work. Outside the courthouse, a small group of supporters gathered with flags and guns to watch the hearing on their phones. I will note one guy has a gun and it is a Civil War antique rifle. Just by the way, I, I have the video version of this clip and I'm looking at it right now. There is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight people, and two, three of that, I'd say two of that eight are children. And there is the one dude with the Civil War antique rifle. With flags and guns to watch the hearing on their phones. And to cheer on Shelley Luther. A determination has been made that you are in contempt of this court. As you can see, we are still open. The salon owner openly defied the governor's order that salons remain closed. Ripped up a cease and desist letter from the county and ignored a temporary restraining order from the court. If you would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge that your actions were selfish. This sounds like me giving a speech to my children. This is the judge talking to the salon owner. If you would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge that your actions were selfish. He's also wearing a face mask, even though he's all the way across the room from her. Everyone is wearing face masks, though. Court. If you would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge that your actions were selfish, putting your own interests ahead of those of the community in which you live. Judge Eric Moyer offered Luther a chance to avoid jail time. He asked if she would apologize, acknowledge she was wrong, and agree to shut down her business until Friday. But Luther would not yield. I have to disagree with you, sir, when I when you say that I'm selfish, because feeding my kids is not selfish. I have hairstylists that are going hungry because they'd rather feed their kids. So, sir, if you think the law is more important than kids getting fed, then please go ahead with your decision. But I'm not going to shut the salon. Yeah, well, he did. The judge sentenced her to serve seven days in jail. Not so bad, but that's going to be a long seven days. And the Texas uh, attorney general is, is asking that to be reviewed uh, tonight as as I chat with you. It's the quintessential story, though, because it's a mom. She's a business owner. She's blonde. I mean, it's all the things that the media loves to pass around. It's the classic media story. But the one that I've been paying attention to is what the numbers tell us. And there's a couple of companies you can go to to get a real temperature for the market. And the payroll companies is one of them. They are front lines to really observe what the layoff impact is from the lockdown. And ADP is one of the best sources of that information. Uh, It's time for the ADP private payroll report. Steve Leisman, 
probably already has the number, but uh, he's not going to give it up to us for like two and a half seconds. Steve. Are we good? There we go. 20,236,000 ADP payrolls reporting that 20,236,000 jobs were lost in the month of April. An historic, expected, still sobering and very disheartening number coming out. They revised down the uh, March payrolls by 122,000. Uh, 249,000. Looking at the different sectors, good services, good sectors down by 4.2 million, service sector down by 16 million. That 20.2 million, it's in line with the 21.5 million total job losses expected to be reported on Friday. So we should see that number on Friday. This, the spread to the other number I looked at, which was telling to me, is that the losses by business size are pretty equal. Medium-sized businesses, 60 to 499 employees is what they classify as medium, so um, somewhere in that range. Uh, they actually fared the best, 5.3 million losses. But small businesses, like less than 50 employees or one employee, 6 million jobs lost. Large businesses, more than 499 employees, 9 million jobs lost. And... Um, the final number, which will also obviously include data from other sources, will give us a much better picture on Friday. So I'll keep an eye out for that. There's another story that we've been covering very, very frequently, and that's the oil story, which is still really something, especially if you're down uh, in the L.A. area and you see all those boats off the coast. It's remarkable. There's just these huge ships. You didn't know boats could be that big. And there's more than you could count parked out there just sitting there with oil. You know, it costs money to run those boats, to park them there. It's not free. You don't just sit there and there's a crew on there. They're running stuff. Uh, there's a cost to that. Additionally, we're shutting down refineries to reduce capacity, in part because it's not economical to run it here. Then you, you combine that with the transportation lines that are shutting down of that oil because the refineries are shutting down. It creates a really, really interesting and potentially crappy situation. I guess if I could leave you with any advice today would be buy gas while you can, because once we all start driving again, once the demand in the U.S. and around the world starts to come back up, you know, probably around midsummer or even maybe early summer, we could actually see the price skyrocket because of this strange situation this, that the production is in right at this point. All of the Storage tanks of refineries all California, but there's no more space. Professor Iraj Urshagi is an oil industry analyst at the University of Southern California. With some refineries already shut down, he fears what will happen when cars are back on the road and demand increases. All of a sudden you go up and you don't have the refinery operation, you don't have the capacity. Well, you're going to have shortages. You're going to have gas lines forming at a gas station as we did in 73 and 79. At some point, we're going to wish we had more ships out there. That's right. It's going to cost money to keep this tank is floating offshore, but somebody's going to pay for it, and it's going to be you and I. When we put the gas in the tank. Exactly. Oh, oh what a surprise. It's always us. It's always us. I teased it long enough. It's time to talk about the situation in Venezuela. Don't look over there. There's just been a group of Rambo mercenaries that attempted a bad coup. I'm not joking. Uh, uh, and... And there's potentially a connection to Donald Trump. You make of that as you will. I'm not going to uh, go any further with that at the moment. I'll continue to read into it. But I think the best coverage this week came from Democracy Now! Uh, they have all of the juicy details, so I'll play this for you. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We're in the epicenter of the pandemic. As we turn now to, though, an incredible story unfolding in Venezuela, where President Nicolas Maduro announced Monday the government had detained two former U.S. Special Forces soldiers who took part in a failed coup attempt against him after 10 armed men landed in a boat near Caracas on Sunday. Venezuelan authorities killed eight of the men, whom they described as mercenary terrorists. Two men were captured. Speaking from his presidential palace, President Maduro showed U.S. passports for the two men, identified as Aaron Barry and Luke Denman. A former Green Beret named Jordan Goudreau has acknowledged the men were working with him and says they attempted to detain Maduro. Maduro accused the U.S. of being behind the plot. 
Mike Pompeo apostaba a este ataque. Mike Pompeo was betting on this attack and believed that this attack would end the revolution, end the constitution, overthrow the government, and kill me. God save us and protect us. The former Green Beret, Jordan Goudreau, runs a Florida-based private security firm called Silver Core USA. He told the Associated Press two Special Forces veterans he fought with in Iraq and Afghanistan were involved in the operation. Goudreau posted a video on Twitter Sunday in which he called the attack Operation Gideon. All right, so let's stop here for a second and review a group of— Former service members created a intelligence arm in Florida for hire. Depressed <laughs> two private security firm. Called- oh, private security firm. Okay, that's different. There's probably, I'm sure, an intelligence angle to what they do, but private security firm means essentially mercenaries for hire. Former Green Beret Jordan Goudreau runs a Florida-based private security firm called Silver Core USA. Can I just say, yeah, of course it's Florida, of course. He told the Associated Press two Special Forces veterans he fought with in Iraq and Afghanistan were involved in the operation. Goudreau posted a video on Twitter Sunday in which he called the attack Operation Gideon. 1,700 hours, a daring amphibious raid was launched from the border of Colombia deep into the heart of Caracas. Our men are continuing to fight right now. Our units have been activated in the south, west, and east of Venezuela. Commander Nieto is with me, is co-located, and Commander Sakai is on the ground now fighting. Goudreau told the Associated Press the last time he communicated with the two Americans who were detained was when they were still offshore, running low on fuel. Goudreau's plan to oust Maduro reportedly began when he provided security at a concert organized by British billionaire Richard Branson in support of Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido. Now, listen carefully. So he's at a party with Branson and an opposition leader, and check out this next line. The Associated Press reports Goudreau had a connection to Trump's longtime bodyguard, Keith Schiller, and Goudreau reportedly accompanied Schiller to a meeting with Guaido's representatives last May in Miami. Okay, so they have a personal connection with Trump's longtime personal bodyguard, which legitimately, if you wanted to get access to the president and work out a deal and relay something to him totally off the books, the, his bodyguard would likely be the best way to do it. Uh, I don't know if it's true or not. Time bodyguard Keith Schiller and Goudreau reportedly accompanied Schiller to a meeting with Guaido's representatives last May in Miami. President Trump. Uh, has denied any involvement, um, uh, any U.S. involvement. For more— Yeah, technically, I watched what Trump said. It was one of those, he's walking out to the helicopter and they ask him questions moments, and he very much emphasizes the U.S. government had no involvement. We're going to Miguel Tinkersalas, professor at Pomona College in Claremont, California, author of The Enduring Legacy, Oil, Culture, and Society in Venezuela, as well as Venezuela, What Everyone Needs to Know. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Professor— can you explain what you understand took place? Was this an attempted coup against Venezuela and at who exactly is direction? Now, I'm going to cut this guy off because he's going to go for quite a while. I will instead, if you're curious about this, refer you to the show notes. Uh, I particularly have a few links here, but the one I particularly like is breaking down the absolutely batshit botched coup attempt against Venezuela's Maduro. <laughs> I mean, there's really... There's really nothing else to say. Some additional details have come out, and it's uh, it's a beauty. It's a real beauty. And when Mike Pompeo was asked if uh, the U.S. government was involved, his response was brief. He just said, quote, if we were involved, it would have gone differently. <laughs> so I think that's their confident denial on that one. I don't know, though. I could see it, you know, the bodyguard connection. He says, hey, we got an opportunity here. You have total denial. If it fails, no big deal. But if it's a success, well, then you can own that and you can be involved in instituting the new government. And the U.S. does clearly seem to want regime change. So I don't know. Who knows? I'd like to know what you think. Unfilter.show slash contact for the email. Unfilter.show slash discord for the community. Also, your support matters more than ever. Let's see if we can do it. Can we make the show enduring? Patreon.com slash unfilter. Yeah, Club 33 is back, but we're calling it Executive 33 now. We'll still be sending out the swag. You'll get subscribed to the stickers. And we'll be, we'll be working out. I don't know exactly what the details are yet, but we'll be working out 
some sort of monthly voice chat, either via Discord or Mumble. I'm a big fan of Mumble, too, but I, I don't know. I'm going to get a taste for a couple of different options, see what tastes good, and then I'll chat with the executives and see what they want to do. But we support, we appreciate your support at all the other levels you can afford to. There's levels there for everybody. Thank you so much. Let's see if we can make this thing happen. Also, The Unfilter Show is on Twitter, at Unfilter Show. And please, be sure to subscribe, unfilter.show slash subscribe. That way you get new episodes whenever they happen to come out. I'm at Chris Elias. Thank you for joining me. I'll see you right back here. Hmm. Not quite sure. I sense very soon. Healers. <laughs>